Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivikarnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the stunning election victory in Australia of Anthony Albanese and the end of the climate wars. We speak to former colleague Dean Bialik, climate diplomat and head of policy at CWP Global. And we speak to Sophie Howe, Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. Plus, we have music from Cathy Palmer. Thanks for being here. So, in a very significant... Nicely done. Nicely done. Very nicely done, Tom. You're such a pro and it's just... Such a pro. Great to hear you're kind of just kind of perfection in radio. So, in a pretty significant way, this is a moment we have been waiting for for a long time. I remember... God, what was it, 18 months ago, getting uh, people on the podcast to talk about the fact that Scott Morrison was had won the Australian election and we all felt really down about the fact that Australia had voted another climate denier in. But this week, the astonishing breakthrough of Labour led to the election of Anthony Albanese and he said within hours of taking office that this was the end of the climate wars and he was going to bring the country together around more ambitious climate strategy. This is about time. As we all know, Australia is on the front lines of the climate crisis, terrible wildfires, but has the potential to be a huge climate leader and help take the world towards a low carbon future, which is what we all need. So first of all, Thank you, Australia. Congratulations. Yes, well this is done. A welcome Thank back. Thank you, Australian voters. Yay. We never lost our faith in you and we are thrilled for your success and for the success of the world. Come on, you two. How do you feel? So teal has very quickly become my favourite colour. Mm, beautiful colour, teal. <laughs> beautiful colour. You want to explain that? <laughs> Can you explain why it's your favourite colour, Christina? Why is it your favourite yeah, Well, it is. it is now. It is now. Um, and we will hear more from from Dean. But how cool is it that this Australian election had a party uh, that took on Teal as a, a as a symbol, but also as their name, Teal Independence. And they all they're all women. First, number one. So cool. All educated, really totally devoted to public policy um, and with a such a refreshing um, political stand on, yes, we're going to be responsible about climate. Yes, we're going to return integrity to politics. And yes, we're going to be inclusive about, um, about everyone in our social, economic and environmental policies. How refreshing is that? Can we please have a teal team in every country? Yes, that's exactly what we need. And and my understanding is, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that they now hold a swing vote in Parliament, right? Because Labour did not yeah. get a majority, so they have to do a partnership with Teal to form the government. Unbelievable. Yeah. Blend of green, blend of green. What was it uh, Sadiq Khan was saying? He says, oh, I steal lots of policies from the Green Party. Well, it's much better to steal their policies than make worse ones myself. I like I like. <laughs> Sadiq Khan's accent in Paul's retelling. That's fantastic. That yeah. Did I do that wrong? <laughs> Paul, how it's do you London think? London accent, that's all it is. How do you feel? Honestly, I, look, there's this crazy thing. I've spent my, you know, years, like all of us, watching the television, and there's kind of like every single hot country in the whole world says, we're terribly worried about climate change, and then it would be like the United States with Donald Trump, and then Australia with kind of crazy people. And these two standout weird countries would sort of reinforce each other's otherness. And it was like a sort of reality distortion effect, some sort of mad, crazy thing from the dark side of humanity. And it's over and I'm so happy. Yay! 
<laughs> and my God, it feels like a long time, right? I mean, it's going yes. back to the days of Kevin Rudd and those sorts of times when Australia was leading. So, you know, we're talking about 15 years ago. Do you know ago. that Prime Minister Abbott repealed a carbon tax? I actually watched a little video of him looking and saying, I'm repealing this carbon tax because it won't do anything for climate change. What a muppet. Anyway, everyone's forgotten his name now. I'm sorry for mentioning it myself. Wash my mouth out with soap and water. <laughs> Oh, by the way, so, after that, he went on to give a speech at the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is, by the way, look on their website. There's like 50 men and one woman. And we've got to talk to her about the fact that, like, you just, she's got to get away from this sort of mad, all-male kind of conspiracy to um, support Tony Abbott in believing mad things. Anyway, they're all gone. Australia's free and we can be happy. Well, they're not quite gone. I mean, the insanity of the UK means that that man is now on the UK's board of international oh, yes, trade. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it. Which it will. We'll deal with that separately. Right. Um, should we just go to, because we've got two interviews mm. for you today, yeah. and the first one um, will really help us dig into Australia. So maybe we just go to that. Unfortunately, I couldn't join you. But Dean Bial- in a better world, Dean Bialik would be world famous. He is one of the most remarkable people and a leader on climate change. He's a lawyer. Um, he has been around in the climate space for many, many years. Uh, he was a close colleague of ours in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. Uh, He not only negotiated on behalf initially of Australia, but then became legal advisor to the world's island states, AOSIS, in the lead up to the 2015 Paris Agreement. Um, He has done so much. He was one of the mobilizing forces of the High Ambition Coalition that, from a political perspective, was hugely responsible for success in Paris. So he is just totally, totally brilliant. Worked very, very closely with Tony de Bruyne from the Marshall Islands. I really, really, one of our former colleagues who uh, is, is still very, very close to our heart. An interruption from Christiana Figueres in the midst of the introduction, no less. That's a major endorsement. And we should not fail to mention that right now, even though he's no longer our colleague, he is now the head of policy and international strategy at CWP Global. So here's Dean with your conversation specifically about Australia. And then we'll be back afterwards for the intersection before we go to Sophie. We'll be back after Dean. Dean, thank you for taking our call uh, just uh, basically in the middle of the night. I'm glad we gave you a few hours of sleep before we called you again. But you probably didn't get too many winks of sleep since you are so excited, I'm sure, about this fantastic result from the Australian elections over the weekend. So, Dean, how much of a surprise is this? How big a deal is it, given where we have been in this incredible seesaw on climate change policy in Australia for as long as I can remember. How long is it? 10, 12, 13 years? How long? Well, Christian, an incredibly exciting time. Um, I think it's fair to say that the election has fundamentally changed the political landscape in Australia. As you mentioned, we've been engaged in a political battle or some would call the climate wars for some 15 years in Australia since Kevin Rudd was elected in 2007 in the famous Kevin 07 election. And uh, this is now an incredible uh, victory for those who have been arguing for forthright focused climate policy um, and a policy that takes advantage of Australia's natural assets. Um, I suppose the biggest surprise has been the success of the so-called teal female candidates um, who are not aligned to either of the major political parties 
but have essentially swept to power across a number of states um, and will hold, it looks like, potentially the balance of power uh, definitely in the lower house and the Greens will have the balance of power in the upper house. Um, the coalition, kind of conservative right coalition, has been pretty much obliterated. They've lost more than 20 seats. Um, and we now have a mandate for a climate policy that not only increases the targets internationally um, and pursues the net zero transition with great fervour and enthusiasm, um, but also which implements sectoral policies that get right down into the weeds of what's required across the board. Um, and that very much relates to the phasing out of fossil fuels, to the electrification of transport, um, to the dealing of, with methane emissions from Australia's very large LNG um, export business. Um, so we're looking at a, a, a complete transformation in the policy settings here. It is so exciting for so many different reasons, Dean, but, uh, but, but you touched upon one that I think cuts very deeply, um, which is these teal independents, uh, all women, all running on basically one issue campaign, separating themselves from the traditional parties and all running on climate change. And all because they know it's good for Australia, but because they know it's good for their families. How 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 has the Australian imagination actually been sparked by these amazing women? So I think it's fair to say, Christiana, whilst climate for these teal candidates was definitely out front as their number one issue, there are a couple of other issues sitting behind that that I think helped to really bake in support in seats where traditionally it has only been the conservative right to hold those seats is a group of very smart, professional, um, aspirational women who spoke very clearly about the generational importance of the decision at this election, but also the need to return integrity to politics and also the need to have a greater representation and respect for women in the political process. Woo! Yeah. Not a bad, not not a bad package to be running on, huh? Not bad. Really good package, and as you said, it really managed to capture the imagination of a yeah. broad groundswell of constituencies, and um, I think it speaks to a real change in the political culture in Australia. Not only the ending of the climate wars, but a great greater degree of transparency and accountability in the in the political process and a greater presence and impact from women in the political process. It's really exciting. Woohoo! <laughs> Dean, can I ask you a tough question here? We've had this crazy thing where the US and Australia have been these sometimes these awful outliers outside of the international system, the two standouts, and we know it's not an accident of, you know, some kind of problem with Australian attitudes. It's about money, right? Because I was just looking, the Financial Times reported today that liquefied natural gas, you're the biggest exporter in the world and uh, second biggest exporter in the world of coal. Those two combined bringing in about $130 billion to the economy last year of Australia. That's 10% of your GDP. How can you kind of free yourself from the resource curse? All that money trying to subvert your politics. How are you going to keep it? How are you going to sustain this victory? So, Paul, I mean, those issues came up uh, very regularly in the uh, political narrative and debate in the lead up to the election. I think what helped 
the Labor Party to win and, you know, with this big groundswell of Teal candidates in behind was to focus very much on the opportunity embedded in the transformation of the economy and, uh, in particular, the new industries that can flow from the decarbonisation process. So, in particular, we're talking here about the opportunity for Australia to be a global leader on green hydrogen and to export mm -hmm. that, use it both domestically and to export it to key Asian markets. So that, in a sense, a displacement of fossil fuels on the trade balance sheet in favour of green energy products. And I think also what we're seeing is with this opportunity to do these massive hubs of renewables, both solar and wind, uh, because Australia has so much space, so much sun and so much breeze, um, to, to uh, value add to the raw materials that we have and produce green products that we can sell to the world. A great example is that Australia puts uh, a whole lot of iron ore on boats to send over to Asian markets in as a raw material does nothing to value add. With very cheap renewable electricity and power, we can convert that iron ore mm. into refined steel products, green steel products, and sell them to the world. With That's, much more value add. It's not a commodity when it's green steel, you'd charge more for it. Fantastic. Exactly right. Another example is the rare earth minerals that are key components for batteries, for energy storage. Um, and you will have noticed one of the first really big batteries to be installed by Elon Musk in a, was in Australia, the first kind of 100 megawatt right. battery, which has made an extraordinary amount of money for its uh, firming value add on the grid. Um, the other thing that's very clear is not only in respect of the exports that you were talking about, but domestically, coal is phasing out much more rapidly than was originally thought. Because... Because, why, why? Renewables are cheaper because coal power plants, if you look at the coal power plants uh, feeding the grid at the moment, 30% of them are offline because they're non-operational and have issues that need to be fixed. So this whole thing about renewables being unreliable, actually it's the, completely the opposite. Um, and we're also seeing major interventions from big um players in the green energy industry and also those, for example, like Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's come on the scene and all of a sudden has bought up 15% of Australia's largest power producer, AGL, and he's now saying to the board, you can't split the company and do coal on the one hand and the renewables on the other. It's more valuable to you to keep it together and just phase out more quickly and bring on the renewables and make your money that way. You know, don't split it off and keep going with coal. It's a complete dead end. Woo! A complete <laughs> dead end. Dean, spoken like the Secretary General of the UN who also said fossil fuels are a dead end. Dean, um, there is clearly so much more exciting uh, news and information here to unpack in Australia. So um, we're, we're, we're going to use this quick conversation just as a foretaste um, and would love to come back, Dean, once the government is seated and there's a little bit more visibility of the first steps and the policies that they're going to be undertaking. Would love to come back to you and a couple of others in Australia to do a whole episode on Australia. Because honestly, we have been waiting on Australia for 15 years. And finally, Australia is back. 
Um, very exciting. So we don't want to to cut Australia short on the podcast. We would love to come back and do a full episode if that um, if that's something that you would be interested in. I would love to do it, and I would love to have a, a teal lady alongside. Yes. One quick footnote: um, a, three hours after being sworn in, the new prime minister Anthony Albanese got on a plane and is meeting with the Quad leaders in Tokyo today. So with President Biden, uh, Prime Minister Kishida and uh, Prime Minister Modi. So it will be, and everyone should watch uh, the news and coverage of that, but it will be the real moment for Albanese to start to talk about the new zeitgeist in Australia. Um, And hopefully that will uh, bring about some real energy and uh, really accelerate his desire to start delivering on the policy front at home. Mm. Awesome. So exciting. Right. We shall come back. All of us will be wearing teal. This is this is going to be our commitment. Welcome back, Australia. Congratulations. Such a great day for the Paul, world. Paul, you're going to look so good in your teal shirt. I'm looking forward to it 100%. Yes, seriously. Dean, thanks so much for uh, for joining us just on uh, on the spur of the moment. And we will be back with a much deeper analysis of, uh, of Australia's turnaround, finally. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Bye. So cool to have Dean Bialik on the podcast just a few days after that remarkable election outcome that he has worked so hard to deliver. Um, I mean, what a fantastic person and so great to hear his analysis. What did you leave that conversation with? I told you teal is my favorite color now and yeah, I want yeah. teal in every country. I mean, really. I, I mean, I, I, I challenged him about kind of business because, you know, that Australia's getting all this money from fossil fuels. And I actually picked up something today from the Elderman Trust Barometer in the Financial Times. They were saying 59% of respondents now say geopolitics is now a top priority for business and 47% of bought or boycotted brands based on the parent company's response to the invasion of Ukraine. So the reason I mentioned all of that, it sounds a bit off topic, but it's not. It is the fact that societies are now coming together around these critical issues. And I think the genius of democracy is that Australian society has recognised that short-term financial gain is not as interesting as long-term financial gain, and we all have a responsibility to our children and their children, and therefore Australia has come good and ended the climate wars. It's just, it's a great new dawn for our planet. What do you think, Tom? Clom, clom, clom? Clay can come in if he wants. Tom, what do you think? Um, So... I mean, I, I I thought it was fantastic. And I also really liked that he pointed out that he felt this heralded real change in the political culture of Australia, that he actually was pretty clear that he didn't think this was a flip-flop. And, you know, as we see in the US, we could be back in the same place four years later. But he thought this was representing a major cultural transformation in Australia. It's what I took from it, which actually is enormously encouraging because we've needed to get to that point for a long time. So uh, hugely exciting news. I agree with both of you and... Uh, on a more serious note, what a an inspiring example of the difference that it makes when women stand up and exercise their agency. We we have talked about this, you know, sort of theoretically m- many times on the podcast that uh, wherever there are women, there tend to be, you know, better decisions, uh, better leadership, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about it during the pandemic. We talk about it in climate. But, but, but this is such a remarkable example 
of these women not not willing to stand down, not willing to operate as victims, as helpless, whatever, but actually standing up in their full agency and glory and saying enough, enough is enough. We are standing here for ourselves, for our children, for their descendants, for our country. And we're going to do what it takes. And I just think it is such a strong and shining example. Um, and one that, you know, seriously, color, independently of the color, um, one that really should be an inspiration for all other countries. And in fact, stakeholders, CEOs, you know, companies, it, it just makes such a difference. Yeah. Mm. And it makes such a difference. And also, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to mischaracterize Australia unfairly, but, it, you know, it has been kind of a blokey culture in some ways over there. And Australians, I think, would admit that, that oh. actually. And I remember speeches in Parliament that were kind of misogynistic. And I remember Julia Gillard coming out and having to really defend herself in that way. So it's not necessarily the easiest culture for that to happen in, So which speaks only to the courage and bravery of those women that they actually had that determination, stepped in and made this happen. Indeed. And that stepped in is key. I was watching just last night uh, a programme from the 1960s and some of the toughest issues were dealt with by female comics in the 1960s. And one of them, she said, it's the same in any movement. How do you get the spotlight and focus it on the issue? And I think that's what the Teal uh, women have done brilliantly. There you go. Good summary. Brilliantly. Although that's actually quite a nice intersection to talk from the past to the future. So should we now talk about future generations? And Sophie Howe has really one of the coolest jobs that must exist as the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. Um, That is a role she's held for the last six years. Her role as the Future Generations Commissioner is linked to the Welsh Government's 2015 Wellbeing and Future Generations Act, which requires public bodies in Wales to think about the long-term impact of their decisions, which is a remarkable uh, piece of legislation that was brought in by Wales. The only other country, I think, that gives as much attention to the needs and views of future generations could potentially be Costa Rica, or am I maybe opening a can of worms there? Well, Tom, you are opening a can of worms because uh, since you weren't able to be on that uh, interview, you don't know that this was the standing joke throughout the interview, right? I see. I'm like, oh, no, are you actually, you know, one upping Costa Rica here? Do we now have to aspire to a Welsh uh, a Welsh nationality as opposed to a Costa Rican nationality. So yeah, you you're you're stepping on very fertile ground, Mr. On Tom Brickett-Karnock. All right. Well, we will explore that further in this interview. So Indeed. here is Sophie Howe duking it out between Wales and Costa Rica. <laughs> we'll be back after Sophie. Thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Um, I'm, I'm almost thinking this is going to be a conversation that takes us very quickly from outrage uh, to a lot of optimism <laughs> and uh, a, a, a lot of role modeling here for so many other countries. But before we get to looking into the future, let's just take a quick peek into the past, Sophie. You are definitely the world's first commissioner uh, in charge of future generation, not in charge, but in charge of monitoring for the well-being of future generations, which is quite exciting. Something that I would say was much more a part of 
indigenous governance in mm. many indigenous cultures rather than in the ones that we are uh, living in now. But um, can you share with our listeners, where did this idea come from? It, it is absolutely an urgent need, but just because we know that there is a need to beware of our impact on future generations doesn't necessarily mean that we then step into a pretty interesting solution to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where did the idea, not that generations need someone to speak for them, but where did the idea come from to form a commissioner in mm-hmm. Wales that is speaking for those who are yet unborn? Um, and of course, I cannot um, hide my curiosity about whether the year in which this was decided, 2015, has anything to do with the fact that 2015 was the year that the UN adopted both the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. Yeah, absolutely. So Wales um, Wales has had quite a long history with sustainable development. So when the um, the Welsh Parliament, the Senedd, as we call it, was established and the new government of Wales, so that was following a, um, a referendum in 1998, the, you know, it had devolution to, um, to Wales in 1999. So the Government of Wales Act um, included this clause which said that sustainable development should be a central organising principle. So kind of, you know, lofty ambitions... But what does that actually mean in practice? And in practice, it didn't really mean an awful lot. What it meant was that the environment minister would take a report to the Senate once a year on, you know, all things sustainable development. But it was very much seen as, you know, that is the responsibility of the environment minister. It certainly wasn't a central organising principle of the whole um, of the whole government. And we had a really progressive um, environment minister, um, you know, going round, um, you know, different countries, seeing the best of the best um, elsewhere. Um, and and she was frustrated that this really wasn't a central organising principle. And it was just, you know, her responsibility once a year to produce this report. Um, she implemented a non-statutory sustainable development commission, um, which would um, sort of audit how well the government was doing. And that sustainable development uh, commission said, well, you know, you're not really um, doing what you should be doing here. And also at the same time, we had new politics in um, in Westminster. So um, the Labour lost the um, the election in, in 2010, and we had a new Conservative and Lib Dem coalition, and they abolished the sustainable development commission in, um, in England or across the UK. And there's always been been this kind of healthy competition between what goes on in Wales and what goes on in England. Um, so there was that was the backdrop, the frustration of this environment minister saying, hang on a minute, this is not just my business, it's just as important. In fact, it's more important what the economy minister's doing, what the housing minister's mm-hmm. doing, what the transport yep. minister's doing. Yeah. And um and saying, and so we need something, you know, more meaty and with you know more specific requirements. So she managed to convince the first minister at the time that uh, running up to the election actions um in 2012 that there would be a commitment that simply said we will legislate for sustainable development. She then actually retired from government, so didn't come into the next term. The new government were left with this, we will legislate for sustainable development. It had been Jane Davidson, that was the minister, it had been her baby. Nobody really knew what to do with it. Um, what is this thing we've kind of agreed to? <laughs> she just sort of um, left it there hanging yeah, for everyone else. Yeah. The great Jane Davidson <laughs> exactly. setting something yeah. out for yeah. us to follow. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And so it was kind of complete um, just serendipity in a way. Um, the right thing happening at the, you know, the sort of the, the right time. So back to your point on, you know, run up to the SDGs and run up to, to the COP in Paris and so on. Actually, that was, it became really helpful because what then happened was we held this big conversation with the citizens of Wales posing the question, what's the Wales you want to be leave behind to your children and your grandchildren and future generations yes, to come? Nice. Yeah. Um, and you get people into a different space when you mm. pose that question, totally. which is really good. And they came up with, I think, 13 different things that they felt were really important. Like, you know, we love our natural resources in Wales. We're rich in, you know, in, in, in natural resources and we should be protecting them. We want to keep people well rather than just treating them when they're ill. We want... Um, to be addressing inequality that exists in our society and a whole range of things. But we also then look to all of the discussions that were going on around the SDG and in the run-up to COP um, in Paris. And that really helped to inform what our kind of long-term vision for Wales was going to be. Those conversations in Wales, those conversations happening internationally. And that then morphed into this, instead of a Sustainable Development Act, a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And I think that's much more powerful. It's much more yeah. relevant to the average person um, on the, the street. Um, and the seven long-term wellbeing goals exist It's more it. motivational, right? Because it's so much yeah. more personal rather than something abstract that could be interpreted yeah. as an academic exercise or political exercise. Uh -huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's how it's, that's how it came to, um, that's how it came to be. And so a lot of, you know, local conversations, a lot of push from, I have to say it was mainly the environmental NGOs initially, but actually because it's so broad defining sustainable development as the social, economic, environmental and cultural well-being of Wales, you've then got the public health people saying, actually, this is a public health act. Mm. And you've got the cultural Good. sector saying, we've got a role in this. And you've got the environmental NGOs saying, well, how can we work with the cultural sector to be communicating what we need to communicate yeah. and so on? Yeah. Wow. How how fantastic. Sophie, and, and so now that we know the roots of this, um, how does it actually work? The, the commissioner is in an advisory role. Is there anything legally binding behind it? How's, how's the operation? When you see, when you identify something that is very clearly not in the interest of future generations, what do you do? What can you do? Okay, so the the kind of the legislation sets out a number of you know requirements for the institutions that are covered by it. So forty four public bodies covered by the Act. Um, all of our health bodies, our local authorities, our you know national agencies like public health and natural resources and so on, and then significantly Welsh government and named are Welsh ministers themselves covered by the legislation. It requires them to set objectives which maximise their contribution to all seven of our wellbeing goals. Um, it requires them to take all reasonable steps to meet those objectives. That's really important because all reasonable steps, that permeates every aspect of what an, a public institution does. How do they spend their money? Um, how do they do their workforce planning? Um, how do they do their risk management? All of those um, sort of functions. How do they do, you know, develop policy and deliver services? Um, and then there's this sort of overarching principle which says they must demonstrate how they're um, meeting today's needs without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. The role of the commissioner then 
is a um, number of aspects. Duties to monitor and assess the progress is being made towards reaching the seven long-term wellbeing goals. Um, powers to provide advice and support to government and others and anyone else who's in, interested or has an interest in achieving those goals. And then I suppose the meatier part of the powers is something which are called Section 20 reviews. So I can go into an organisation or collective uh, collection of organisations on a particular topic. So for example, I've just looked at procurement. How are we spending the £7 billion we spend on goods and services in, in Wales, across Wales, um, and make recommendations. I can provide an assessment of what's going on there in line with the Future Generations Act and make recommendations which there are statutory duties uh, that those public bodies have to respond to. And if they're not going to follow my recommendations, they have to set out why and what alternative course of action they're going to take. So I can't force anyone. Comply or explain, I think it's called, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but a bit of name and shame, I would say, <laughs> and a bit of, yeah, um, adopt or justify, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And the seven and the seven areas, can you define them? So seven wellbeing goals, um, nothing sort of groundbreaking in the titles, but I'll say a little bit more perhaps about the, the details. So prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, which is about ecological resilience, um, a healthier Wales, a more equal Wales, a, a Wales of vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language, um, a cohesive Wales and a globally responsible Wales. So nothing wow. there really that is kind of massively uh surprising you would expect a country to sort of you know be bothered but brilliant, about all of those areas brilliant to crystallize all of that into <laughs> seven goals totally brilliant yeah yeah and i think that the one of the most exciting parts about it is if we look at our goal of a prosperous wales it talks about productive innovative low carbon society one which uses resources efficiently and proportionately including acting on climate change um, and one which helps to develop a well-educated population with the skills to enable them to access decent work. Now, not catchy, of course, but if you pick out, you know, nowhere there is GDP, um, yep. you know, and it's this kind of, yes, prosperity within planetary boundaries. So that's kind of, you know, for that to be yep. not just a, a policy definition of prosperity, but a um, you know, a statutory definition, that's really exciting. And then the other important element with those is that all of those bodies have um, requirements to set objectives which maximise their contribution to all of those goals. So that's requiring them all to work beyond their traditional boundaries. So it's just as important what the economy department does in terms of improving the health of the nation um, as it is the economy. It's just as important what the housing department does in terms of the environment. Uh, uh, Sophie, I, I have... I have to interrupt you here because so, uh, Christiana just sent me a note asking how to get your job because she thinks it's really cool. How do you get your job? <laughs> so, you so your Sophie, job? <laughs> honestly, I think this is the coolest job on the face of this planet. <laughs> I am so thrilled. And, and, you know, we're in major dangerous area right here on this podcast because my colleagues know that I um, very disrespectfully use this podcast to always sing the praises of Costa Rica. I think we're in serious danger here of Costa Rica having to take second place uh, to ah, Wales whoa, after we've heard whoa. this. That's this a big is thing, pretty Sophie. amazing. That's yeah, a yeah, it's a thing. big That's thing. Big that is really amazing. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, how did you get the job? 
Well, um, so my background is in the um, the public sector. So I've worked in lots of different organisations. Um, I started my career as a young councillor. I was the youngest councillor in Wales. I was elected at the age of 21. Um, I've got a background in equality and diversity. So I managed the legal department in the Equal Opportunities Commission. I've worked in government. I've been in policing. I've been in a range of different public sector roles. And I suppose my frustration about all of them is that pretty much in all of those roles we're picking up problems that have gone gone wrong you know decades before um in some occasions so my passion is about this sort of public policy reform shifting towards prevention and away from short-termism and kind of joining the dots um between things so yeah yeah so can i ask you a little bit about that i mean by the way, you will you will have heard this before, but for our listeners, we we had a whole thing with Kim Stanley Robinson on this book, The Ministry for the Future. And of course, many people will say you are the Minister for the Future, which is very exciting. And I cannot help but avoid uh, quoting a UN Assistant Secretary General who said, what Wales is doing today, the world will do tomorrow. And indeed, many countries following your leadership. So fantastic there. But I'm, I'm fascinated by a comment that you made a little while ago. You said on a podcast... Um, uh, I am very pleased not to have anything to do with party uh, politics anymore. And and what I think is so interesting is, you know, the world is torn apparently between a kind of left wing and a right wing. And actually, maybe everyone's forgotten there's a third one. There's a kind of future wing. And you're embodying <laughs> some kind of new kind of administrative politics, which is so exciting. Can you talk a little bit mm. about that as it's coming into being? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the role is, you know, political with a small P, isn't it? It's not party political, but, you know, when you're, when you're talking about public policy, which is what I'm doing all, all the time, but from a futures perspective, of course, it's, um, it's political. But, um, you know, in some ways, um, you know, and this is perhaps a criticism of the role. How do I know what the interests of future generations are? Because the unborn don't speak to me. So, and, you know, and who, so, you know, how how do I know whether I'm sort of saying or doing the right thing? Who's holding me to account? Because, you know, the unborn can't hold me to account either. Um, And so on. But (laughs) but it does give you that, that sort of freedom to not be bound by, okay, I know we really need to take these really significant actions in terms of shifting the way we spend money to deal with the climate crisis, but that's too politically difficult, so I'm not going to. It does give me the freedom to say, well, actually, you know, that I speak on behalf of future generations, and that is absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, the right thing that we should be doing. And I'm not bound by, you know, am I going to get elected next time for taking some of those difficult decisions? And What's really quite interesting, and perhaps I'll let you into a, a secret here. Good, we like secrets. <laughs> sometimes the politicians actually quite like me calling them out on stuff, and they quite like yeah, me. Yeah, gives them up. cover. <laughs> it of course, does. it gives them it, cover. Very yeah. important cover. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, you know, it's the same as you know they set up commissions and reviews and you know and all of these things because it does give them that that cover because sometimes it's it's really yep. you know I've been in a political environment it's really difficult because you know I said that the people of Wales came up with these goals and definitely they did um, but you know we've got some local issues now when we do things like so therefore we're going to stop all road building in Wales oh well hang on. 
but not my road, not the road that was going to be the bypass from my village. Don't stop that one. Um, and so then I am able to enter into that fray to say, well, on behalf of future generations, I know this might be difficult for you now, but we do need to be taking those difficult decisions. And so the politicians in that instance are absolutely right to be taking some of those difficult decisions. And maybe I can give them some yeah. support so and cover on, on that. On that one specifically yeah. then, am I right in thinking Wales... Is the only country in the world that has announced a moratorium on new roads? Is that true? Yes. Um, so this stemmed from, I suppose, the first sort of major test of the Future Generations Act and, and I suppose the power or the intervention of the commissioner. So the government had had on the books for a long time plans to um, spend all of its borrowing capacity on building a 13-mile stretch of motorway to deal with the problem of um, congestion at an area called um, Newport. And I intervened in that issue. So I think it's important to say I can't intervene in every decision. So they have to be sort of big strategic decisions. And I considered this to be a big strategic decision. The entire borrowing decision. power of the government would seem to be yes, pretty big, right? Quite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's one of the reasons why I intervened. And it was going to sort of set this precedent. So I asked them to explain to me how they'd applied the Future Generations Act, their own legislation to their thinking on this decision that they were uh, planning to take. And they had real trouble um, explaining. So, you know, can you explain to me how this is in line with that definition of a prosperous Wales, productive, innovative, low carbon society, you know, acts on climate change and so on. Um, can you explain to me what long, long-term trends you've considered here in terms of health? Because um, by my reckoning, we've got a big problem with um, air pollution, illegal levels of air pollution. We've also got a big problem with obesity. So building more roads to fill and getting more people to sit in their cars rather than travelling actively doesn't seem to be helping with that. Um, can you explain to me how this is in line with the goal of a more equal Wales? Because 25% of the lowest income families in that region don't even own a car. So why is it that you're spending the entire of Wales's borrowing capacity on something which is already going to, you know, benefit already the already better off? Okay. And they had real trouble. Yeah. So they couldn't demonstrate how they'd applied um, the act. And it went to a public inquiry and, you know, and actually the inspector in the public inquiry recommended that it should still go ahead. So therein lies some of the problems with the whole system beneath this that needs to reform. But the first minister had been regarded as a complete done deal. It was going to go ahead. Um, following that intervention, the first minister changed his mind and he said, which I think was probably one of the first time ever in Wales, maybe that's unfair, but, you know, Usually, if there's an economy versus environment argument, economy wins, environment loses. Yes. And the First Minister said, um, I'm persuaded by the arguments and I give more weight to the environmental arguments than the economy um, arguments in, in this. Q then changed to the entire transport strategy in Wales, which my office have worked with the government on, drafted parts of it, aligned it to the wellbeing goals and so on. And then I challenged them on, OK, this is all very well and good, but you still keep allocating money to build more roads. Why are you doing that? Because that's not in line with what you said you're going to do. Um, and so they stopped doing that. There was about three years of me challenging on that. Um, this year, first year, we've seen we were spending two thirds of our infrastructure investment budget on roads. This year, that's gone down to a third. And the government have announced a moratorium on all road building. So 52 already approved schemes in Wales have been halted and are being reviewed independently um, in line with the Future Generations Act and our carbon, um, our climate targets. And, uh, I and, think three have so been reported so far and have been completely cancelled. And Sophie, so is it cool. true that, the, that that doctors can prescribe bicycles to people? Yes, yeah. So, 
Yeah. So this is the, you know, this is where you get this, this join up. So really interesting thing that one of the principles in the act is that you they must demonstrate the long term preventative action, collaboration, integration and involving citizens. So that collaborative um, approach, what we've seen um, in our capital city is a public health consultant seconded into the council to lead on the development of the transportation strategy. And so when you like apply a public health lens to a transport problem, you get a completely different set of solutions. So they've targeted active travel and public transport investment to the communities with the lowest levels of life expectancy and the highest levels of air pollution, which incidentally also happen to predominantly be our Black Asian minority ethnic communities. Um, and you've got things like, yeah, doctors being able to issue bikes on prescription. It's, it's, so it's it's yeah. honestly it's amazing policy and who knows if it'll be adopted by Costa Rica. But here's a final question for you because I know <laughs> we're running out of time. You've also thought about basic a basic income and having a basic mm. income pilot. I mean, I think that's a very far-sighted. We've not discussed it on the podcast before. Can you just give a little bit of your thinking behind basic income and how you're trying to move ahead with it? Yeah, so I mean, I I've, I've got a number of priority areas that I focus on. One of the things, if we get them right, would make the biggest contribution to reaching those long-term goals. Um, And one of them is better ways of keeping people well. And if we look at the wider determinants of health, so, you know, in Wales and indeed across the UK, we spend about 50% of our entire government budget on our National Health Service, which is much loved and well-regarded and utterly brilliant. The problem is, is it's a national illness service. So basically what we do is we treat people when they're ill, we don't join the dots to help keep them well in the first place. And if you look at the World Health Organization data, what it tells us is that the the major differences in life expectancy in um, most developing countries are things which are not really to do with what the healthcare system itself does. Only about 10%, in fact. 35% of what makes a difference to our health and, you know, whether you die older or younger is income security. Um, you know, can you put food on the table? Are you living hand to wow. mouth? You know, these sorts of things. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Sorry, so really, Sophie, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Can you say that again? 35%. Yeah. Just can you just repeat that? It's worth repeating. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of what makes a difference to the reasons why some people die 20 years younger in, you know, in Wales and and the UK than than other people, 35% of what accounts for that difference is income security. So basically, poverty kills is the, um, you know, the short um, uh, analysis there. So we would actually be much better off um, dealing with that poverty problem than putting um, more money, more and more money into treating the problem after it's sort of occurred in the NHS. So that's where my role is coming in and saying we need some long term interventions here. And we also need to be looking at, you know, things that are happening, you know, in the labour market. So the change in nature of work, our welfare state was established when the gig economy didn't exist. Um, you know, mm. um, our, and, and it's just not fit for purpose anymore. And even if you look at kind of um, environmental issues, um, you know, things like whether people can afford, you know, good quality locally produced food. I mean, there are wider issues there, but that's down to poverty. Whether they can afford electric vehicles or not, that's down to poverty. Actually, we want want them to be using public transport. But there are lots of these kind of connections here. So again, that was, so universal basic income, I think, 
should be a solution that we should be looking at. It was seen as a completely left of field idea. Um, it's going to cost a lot of money. I say not as not as much money as you know treating the problem after it's um, occurred. Right. Um, and the government uh, at the beginning of this year announced the first pilot of a universal basic income Yay. in Wales. Wow! So yeah. amazing wow. pioneering. Wales giving Costa Rica a real run for its money. Thank I definitely, you, definitely. I, I can see everybody here paddling like crazy under the water. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sophie, how inspiring, how absolutely brilliant uh, that we have at least one country moving ahead and, and honestly really opening a, a whole space of possibilities that many people have thought about and written about, but is much more difficult to get to implementation. So mm-hmm. how absolutely exciting. So well, honestly, I think Paul and I would love to to stay online here and hear more and more from you, but sadly we have to come to a close. Now, w- how we come to a close on this podcast, Sophie, is we always ask our guests, what is one thing that they are outraged about and one thing that they're optimistic about? Now, your whole conversation, in fact, your whole job is about being optimistic that we can today mm-hmm. lay the groundwork for a much better future. So if you want to say something about that, that's fine. But actually, I would love to encourage you to say in this job that you've been doing for, what, six years now? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um what continues to be outrageous to you? Um, I think that it's, uh, well, I'm going to call it outrageously frustrating <laughs> that the unpicking of the good system enough, good enough. That, <laughs> that I've got to do or that needs to be done. So the, the unpicking we've got of this, the, the system. system. So oh. we've got this brilliant Future Generations Act. The systemic is, paralysis, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So, but what's come before that mostly is completely at odds with the Future Generations Act. So, you know, short-term performance measures, we're still allocating budgets in many cases on an annual basis. Um, You know, we're still, um, you know, being held to account on these sort of, you know, five-year electoral cycles and so on and so on. So, and even down to like, you know, the minutiae of how does a procurement officer take decisions on contracting when they're still trying to put, you know, cost above anything else. Um, Unpicking that system is outrageously frustrating. And, you know, every day I see that stuff happening in Wales and indeed across the world. So despite the fact we've got legislation, we've had these like real big shifts. It's still the day to day um, outrageous decisions that are not in line with that Future Generations Act, which add up to, um, you know, outrage, if you like. But on the optimistic front, bit by bit, we are unpicking it and bit by bit things like the moratorium on road building and the UBI and the changes to our planning policy and the changes to our um, waste policy. Wales is third in the world for recycling, tiny little Wales. Um, And we're moving beyond recycling and now to a completely circular economy. So bit by bit, we're unpicking that system, but it's going to take quite a long time. Well, it's taken a long time to build it up. So it's not (laughs) going to happen overnight for sure. Um, How wonderful. Sophie, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing this with us. I'm sure our listeners are just going to be, you know, wildly inspired as are Paul and Clay and myself. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. 
um, we're going to be following this. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure there are many, many lessons learned of, of how to go about uh, cutting into this very, very new space. So, thank you for for pioneering this, Sophie. Thank you to Wales. Thank you to you. Thank you so, so much, Sophie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for unpicking the system, Sophie. Yeah, <laughs> I'll keep going. <laughs> So what a great interview. I was so sad to miss this one. Um, Paul, history suggests you probably have something to say. Do you know, I do. I do. Thank you for asking me, Tom. <laughs> I've been completely inspired by Sophie and I've been running around thinking about things. Do you know, I read an article in the Financial Times. All I do is watch television and read the Financial Times. And it was saying that the human project has kind of changed a bit, that we're not necessarily trying to build a better world, but we're just trying to kind of protect this one now. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but I do sense that extreme weather has galvanised the entire world now. And I think we need to be much more ambitious ambitious in recognising that that power. I look, I listen to what Sophie's doing and, and the authority she's taken, because, you know, authority is taken and not given. And, you know, I, I think of other global movements like the anti-apartheid movement, which you can see within this context of an anti-racism movement that's been going on for millennia. But rather than left wing and right wing, we've now got this future wing and it's a unifying force and it's growing and it's getting stronger. And I can hear it and feel it and sense it. And I'm just so excited about how we can unite the climate change movements around the world with extreme weather galvanizing everyone's attention on making the changes we, we need to have. Because Things are moving really fast now, and I think we can be so confident. And Sophie's just a beacon that I think aligns us with how to get stuff done. How do you follow on from there? <laughs> now, that's a compliment coming from Christiana. Yeah. You need to watch a lot of TV and read a lot of the Financial Times to have that level of insight. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> well, there's more to it. Do you know, Scotland's oh, no. announced it's joining oh, uh, no. a future commissioner. Really? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no. I've got like this. I'm on another first page of an eight-page uh, treatise here, but uh, no, no. Honestly, everyone's following. Uh, it's just amazing. Well, it is. It is very exciting, and one actually asks, uh, "How did it take us so long to get here?" Uh, yeah. It, it's. It is. It, it's clearly the right thing to do, and gives the long-term perspective that we all need. But also, I just I was just reflecting after that conversation with her. And that's why I say, how did why did it take us so long to get here? Because the fact is that there are other cultures who have had this wisdom and have mm -hmm. cooperated this wisdom before. And the one that comes very quickly to mind is the children's fire that has been made pretty famous by Mac McCartney where he tells us about this process, this decision process that some of the um, original peoples of the United States followed in which the elders would sit in council when they had a very important decision to make and they would sit around a fire which they understood to be the children's fire. And the fire in the center of their circle would remind them that whatever decision they took had to actually pass the fire of, is it in the interest of future children? And otherwise, they didn't take decisions. And that was the way that they decided between A, B, or C. It was also, is this actually 
in the benefit and does it contribute to the well-being of future children? That that is a beautiful ancient wisdom and tradition that we have lost. And how wonderful that Wales is now bringing that back, Um, not asking their elders to sit around the fire, although all of us would benefit from that, but actually to institutionalize this in the way that Sophie has explained to us and to do so in such a thoughtful and such a such a powerful way. The fact that, you know, she can question any policy that is put in place. I mean, it's just completely brilliant. And my point is, although we would think it's very innovative, it actually goes back to ancient wisdom. Mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I thought it was really interesting that she talked about, it's it's kind of like an advisory voice in the room, right? That she says that um, because she doesn't have to worry so much about votes, she can then challenge ministers on what they're going to do and say, well, what about future generations? How do we incorporate that into decision-making? One of the things I think I would have asked her if I'd been in the conversation, I wonder if either of you got this sense, is whether whether that's effective or frustrating. What did you get the sense of? Because, I mean, the other alternative, if you were to think about how a role like that might evolve, would be to merge it, say, with the finance minister so that the finance minister had to consider both. Do you think an advisory role is powerful enough to actually make sure decisions are based on that? Because presumably that advice can be ignored by ministers. What what was your sense of her perspective on that part of her role? Well, my I, I think it's a it's a brilliant idea, Tom. Um, and it might evolve into that. My sense is that it's currently an advisory role because that is what is currently possible, what is politically feasible. I think if they had pushed too far and wanted to make it, uh, you know, structurally part of the Ministry of Finance, um, two things. A, there might have been much more resistance to it. But also, I think she or the role would have lost this overview. I I Mm. think of her or the commissioner as sort of being in the control tower over over all of the landing and taking off airplanes. And she does have extraordinary leeway to ask all kinds of uncomfortable questions. So she doesn't have the power to stop something, but she's definitely has the the power, if you will, to ask people to justify, those who are making decisions, to justify themselves from the point of view of, of future generations. And personally, she has a brilliant capacity to make you feel very uncomfortable with yourself. If you, if you haven't thought, yeah, it's a poor (laughs) skill. Uh, If you haven't thought of all of these ramifications down, you know, a few decades from now. So, you know, good on her. Uh, And her. What did you think, Paul? Yeah, no, her, her, her kind of, um, her position in the government, I think. uh, And if we, if we imagine uh, more functions like that in other governments around the world, they are as important as that particular issue. What do I mean? So like when there's something terrible like a war, then the then the kind of the the defense ministry is is right. the one that's most yeah. important. When there's like a global pandemic, the health ministry comes along. When there's a sustainability crisis, then then her ministry becomes the most important. And by the way, and this I thought was absolutely fascinating. She said the Future Generations Act felt more relevant and personal to people than the old Sustainability Act. 
So here's mm. some learning. You know, let's this word sustainability. You know, it kind of explodes and becomes boring simultaneously. The, the future generations are what this is about, and let's respect the future generations in our governing process. I mean, you know, the only reason we're here is because, to some extent, they respected the future generations in pre previous governing processes, and we got that same obligation to the next generations. Very nicely said. Yeah. I, I really like that reinterpretation of sustainability into something that is much more personal. There's very little that is um, as deeply personal and as deeply motivating as a parenting role, whether you are a physical parent or whether you are, you know, a, 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 a parent or playing a parent role to many other people, many other young people. And I say that because Paul is not a parent, <laughs> but he plays a parent role Aww. to many young people. And so, but my and point is- And some older that, people. Yeah. And some older people. <laughs> Returning the parenting favor that they're still doing me. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it really makes it very personal. It makes it very human. It takes it out of the academics, theoretical, you know, there are three pillars to sustainability, that kind of thing. And it just makes it about- Okay, this is about us. Yeah. I'd stop listening by the time you got to the end of that sentence, actually, which is an indication you're probably right. There are three pillars to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Cruel but fair, Tom. Cruel but fair. All right. Anything else to add before we go to our music? No, just kudos to Wales, kudos to Australia. It's so nice to have good news because we had really so much is. bad news last yeah. week. Um, and so there we are. How, how we go from outrage to optimism. Hallelujah one, for our wonderful title. One more bit of good news. I went out and I looked at the flowers just today and they are so beautiful. Um, so maybe it depends what country you're in and all the rest of it. But just to say, yeah, it's a beautiful world and it may be getting more beautiful. The flowers are nice. Pro tip from Paul. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for being here with us this week. We will leave you as ever with some music this week from Kathy Palmer. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello, I'm Kathy Palma, a Guatemalan singer-songwriter. This song I'm going to be sharing with you is about transforming pain into change and recognizing the equality between our cultures and the way we love and feel. As a surprise today, I'm sharing this acoustic rendition with a very special guest from Mexico. Here's a message from him. Quiero saludar a todos. Yo soy Rey Libarba. Soy un artista y compositor mexicano. Así que un privilegio para mí. Without further ado, esto, esto es Quémalo. Escuché el susurro de odio y de muerte y me dejé llevar por esa corriente. Yo sentía el fuego como me ardía y corría la hoguera a lo que sabía. El dolor me dijo, sácame cantando. Llévame a la iglesia, déjame en sus santos Pa' que te levantes, pa' que seas manto De tus opresores y de tus hermanos Pa' que de su llanto crezcan muchas flores Y la tarde pinte todos sus colores Pa' que te levantes que seas manto de tus opresores y de tus hermanos oh. 
Quémalo, 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 mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, quémalo, mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, 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 mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, quémalo, mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, 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 quémalo. Escuché el grito del amor y el campo de los mil cantares. Mares y los transmuté del agua salada y pudo florecer la muerte de vida para que de su llanto crezcan muchas flores y la tarde pinte todos sus colores para que te levantes. Pa' que seas manto de tus opresores y de tus hermanos. Quémalo, quémalo, mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, quémalo, mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, 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 mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, quémalo, mándalo para el aire. Quémalo, 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 quémalo. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of this podcast, and welcome to the end of the show, where I wrap things up, uh, have some fun, and send you off to the rest of your beautiful day. The song you just heard was an Outrage and Optimism exclusive. This is huge, and what an honor. Quemalo by Katy Palma with special guest Reilly Barba. Muchísimas gracias, and thank you for giving us this incredible music to share with our audience. Again, that was an exclusive for our podcast, and you can't find it anywhere else. Ah, so cool. Um, Katy Palma has much more music you can listen to on Apple, Spotify, you know, wherever you get your music. Um, please check the show notes for links to that. And 
be sure to follow her as an artist on YouTube or Apple, you know, Spotify and social media, etc. because she has more releases of music planned for this year. So stay tuned. I'm going to give a quick recommendation. Um, cool by myself. Pintara del Roto and Lost in Translation are my three favorite songs of hers. But you might have your own favorite. So go listen. Enjoy. Thank you to our guest this week, Sophie Howe. She wins the Cool Job Award 2022 for sure. And you can connect with her on social media via the links in the show notes. And thank you to Dean Bialik for joining us so quickly after the Australian election. Um... You can check the show notes uh, for his social media as well. Now, if you like this podcast, you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We read every single one. And actually, I'm going to read one right now. So let me read one to you here. Okay, here's one from Galeana1965 titled Meat Consumption. I just found your informative and interesting podcast Is there any episode regarding the unsustainable and harmful effects of animal factory farming and the urgency to eat more plants and less animal-derived foods? Galeana1965, thank you for your five-star review first. Uh, And yeah, we've actually done four episodes on food systems already, and one in particular I think you might enjoy is episode 25 with Ethan Brown, the CEO of Beyond Meat. Uh, He's been one of our favorite guests of all time, uh, especially Paul's. And I have a link to all four of these episodes in the show notes for you that you can check out. Also, actually, we're working on an episode coming out soon on alternative proteins as part of our future of food series. Um, Thank you again for your review. Uh, The best way to hear that episode when it comes out is to hit subscribe to this podcast or follow us on social media at Outrage Optimism. Coming soon. Okay. Enjoy the weekend. Another episode coming next week. Bye.